0: everyone and welcome to social sport i'm your host emma zimmerman and this show is a member of the sidious mag podcast network on social sport i feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change these athletes are climate change activists their are mental health advocates promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces and much more But what ties all of these athletes together is that they're committed to exploring the connection between sport and activism in their lives. Big thank you to Paper Trails Greeting Co. for sponsoring the Social Sport Podcast. Paper Trails Greeting Co. is the most comprehensive and adorable line of running greeting cards out there. It's a small business, and it's owned and operated by an athlete like many of you. The inspiration for Paper Trails Greeting Co. comes from the power of connection. So one of my favorite things to do to connect with the people I love is to send them a handwritten note. There's truly nothing better than receiving a greeting card, and Paper Trails has it all, with cards for various occasions, for birthdays, running distances, and more. You can go to papertrailsgreetingco.com and use code SOCIALSPORT to get 15% off your order. I want to ask you a quick favor before we dive into today's conversation. If you are enjoying Social Sport, please consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings and reviews are so important in growing the podcast. You can also donate to help fund Social Sport. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm slash social sport, click the support button, And honestly, every dollar counts. I am so grateful to you for listening, and please enjoy this episode. Heather Kaplan joins me today. She is an anti-diet, weight-inclusive, registered dietitian. So you might be thinking, okay, I hear the terms intuitive eating, weight-inclusive, and anti-diet, all the time, but what do they actually mean and what do they look like in practice? Heather decodes these terms, and she talks about weight stigma and bias in dietetics as they affect athletic communities and as they affect folks of marginalized identities. Heather hosts the podcast RD Real Talk. She is also the founder of Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics, aka WIND, and she co-founded the Lane 9 Project, a virtual community for athletes experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea. Basically, Heather does a lot. She has a ton of experience and is such an important voice in the anti-diet world, both in sports and beyond. I know you'll enjoy hearing from her today. Hey, Heather, welcome to Social Sport. I'm so happy to have you here today. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell everyone who you are
1: and where you are right now? Uh, My name is Heather Kaplan. I'm a non-diet dietitian. I am currently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me.
0: And you just moved there, right?
1: Yeah, we moved from Arlington, Washington, D.C. area, and it was over the summer um, during COVID, which was obviously not the plan when we found out we were moving, and we're here for probably the next two or three years, and then we'll probably be back in the D.C. area, so it's just a little temporary move to the mountains and trying to just kind of like get settled (laughs) and just during everything else that's going on.
0: Yeah. Have you enjoyed the move? Has it been fun to be out there or a little bit of everything?
1: Yeah, I would say a little bit of everything. It's been hard, obviously, to adjust to a new place during a pandemic when we can't do very much. Um, It's really hard to meet people and it's really hard to kind of get to know the city when most things are either not open or don't feel very safe. Um, We spend a lot of time outside, so this is a good place to be for spending time outside. Um, We certainly enjoyed kind of getting here over the summer and having access to trails and parks and weather that is sort of uh, nicer to be outside in than like the D.C. area in the summer, which is really hot and humid. (laughs) So um, with little kids, it's been great because we just try to spend as much time as we can kind of exploring the area while the weather is cooperative. So in that way, it's been really nice.
0: Yeah. I feel like with every move, there are like so many pros and cons and it's hard to leave a place that you've, it seems like you've been in the DC area for a while.
1: Yeah. We were, I had been there about a decade, my husband a little bit longer. We've both kind of been in and out for different reasons, but this will be the longest that we've been away. So, um, in some ways it's a really nice break. It's good to get out of your routine and your comfort zone a little bit, but just doing so during a pandemic was a little extra challenging so yeah. wouldn't recommend that but we have survived
0: <laughs> surviving and somewhat thriving it seems yes yes some some of that so I want to go into the work that you're doing today but I think in order to really understand the work that you do it's necessary to dive a little bit into your background which you've shared in so many places I mean you've been on the today show and various podcasts and specifically you've talked about your five-year battle with orthorexia so I'd love to give my listeners some background on that what is orthorexia first of all and how did it manifest for you
1: Orthorexia is defined as an unhealthy fixation on healthy behaviors. That's the really simple definition. Uh, Of course, it's a quite complicated experience because we all live in a culture that is obsessed with thinness and quote unquote health. And I put air quotes around that because the definition that we have of health within our culture is very, very limited and privileged. Um, And then that can manifest into a pattern of really disordered behaviors and obsessive behaviors where um, for many folks who experience orthorexia, it's an obsession with healthy eating, with quote unquote, clean eating, with thinness and fitness. And sometimes it has actually very little to do with the medical world's definition of health, but that's sort of the guise under which uh, orthorexia thrives is that if you just Obsess over these things and follow the rules and uh, live in a very rigid, structured world. You are guaranteed health. That's kind of the the underlying promise, and that's not true. <laughs> so, uh, what often happens with folks who've experienced orthorexia, and I will say this is true for myself, is kind of the irony that you obsess over health and your health actually suffers because of it. Um, And during those years, I also was experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea, which at the time I didn't fully understand, but obviously now I have a much better understanding of that, um, which is an absence of a menstrual cycle for someone who has female body parts. And uh, it's a pretty clear sign from your body. If you're not getting a regular cycle uh, and you have those organs, something is probably off. It's not always going to be HA, but for me, there was a pretty clear sign that that's what it was, meaning there were no other diagnoses present that would account for not getting a cycle. So yeah, I think, you know, the irony of orthorexia is that for many, many folks, the obsession with being healthy often leads to unhealthy and really disordered behaviors that actually negatively impact their physical health, but also, worth mentioning their mental health and their emotional health as well.
0: And for you in particular, during that time, I understand, I mean, you were a runner, you are still an athlete, you were an athlete, and you were studying nutrition, dietetics. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine that understanding of health as we, you know, I'll put health in air quotes, was especially confusing for you. How did you balance the idea that you were studying nutrition and you were an athlete with this eating disorder?
1: Yeah, I think if I had not chosen to study nutrition in college, I would have had a really different experience for the next couple of years. I maybe would have recognized much earlier how disordered and kind of destructive those behaviors can be and those thought patterns can be. But um, because I chose to study nutrition, and I will say the asterisk there is that I chose to study nutrition because I was obsessing over food and nutrition and health. Um, And so it just felt like the more information I could consume about that, the better. Um, So I chose to study nutrition. And then for a long time, that felt very validating. A lot of my disordered behaviors and my obsession with Body image, body presentation, etc., were validated by what I was learning in my program, um, because unfortunately, kind of more traditional dietetic practices can reinforce a lot of disordered, restrictive behaviors and disordered beliefs and thoughts around health. Um, there are some of us who are working very hard to change that and to kind of expand our view of health and our definition of "quote unquote" healthy eating, but you know, as I experienced it, as I mentioned, it just felt very validating and sort of kept me stuck in that cycle for a long time. And I also experienced a lot of cognitive dissonance as I started practicing as a dietitian, because I was beginning to see how harmful a lot of those behaviors were and how they did negatively impact both my physical and my mental health. And I just couldn't find it in me to say it was okay to tell someone else to do a behavior that I knew was disordered and could be harmful. Um, And it all, it presents differently for everyone. You know, my experience is not going to be the same as a client's experience, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't able to recognize that by suggesting that someone count calories or track this or track that or restrict this or restrict that, that wouldn't be harmful in some way or potentially disordered in some way.
0: So early years of dietetics were challenging. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. And I like how you use the term traditional dietetics. I haven't really thought of it in traditional versus non-traditional before, but I'm excited to go into in a little bit your practice, which is very much different than what you would consider traditional dietetics, I believe. But another thing you said was that orthorexia or eating disorders in general present differently for different people. So I'm curious for athletes, I think it's fair to say that athletes need to think about nutrition to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So how do athletes differentiate between an interest in nutrition and trying to eat the quote unquote, right things for their bodies and an unhealthy fixation with food?
1: Right. Yeah. So what you've pointed out is that basically sports nutrition can be turned into its own kind of diet and its own set of rules. Uh, And there is sort of this fine line of acknowledging that nutrition science can be super helpful in athletics and can be really beneficial to athletes and helping them better understand how to fuel their body and respect what it needs and provide what it needs And there is this huge potential for harm and disordered eating and eating disorders in athletics because we can pretty quickly turn a helpful set of guidelines into a harmful set of rules. And we also operate in a world of athletics still where there is a lot of emphasis placed on body type and um, body composition, which we know can also be a risk factor for disordered eating and eating disorders when... Athletes are made to believe that their body needs to fit a certain aesthetic or look a certain way to perform a certain way. And therefore they need to kind of fit themselves into this box. Um, we've seen a lot, like in stories that have come to light in the last few years, we've seen the harm that that can do to athletes. Um, and by bringing non-diet work into sports nutrition or intuitive eating into sports nutrition, we can still acknowledge and honor what we know about nutrition science for athletes without turning it into a harmful set of rules or a harmful set of body ideal beliefs. And instead just teach that to athletes or provide it to athletes as a way to help them acknowledge what they need and how their needs might be unique for them and their sport um, and what that might look like and how to be flexible
0: with it. I love everything that you just said there. And I want to now dive into the work that you do. Um, And specifically, I want to dive into some of the terms that I think we hear thrown around a lot when we talk about dietetics and kind of this non-traditional form of dietetics. And one of them is non-diet, which you Mm -hmm. brought up before and another one or anti-diet, and another one is health at every size. So could you kind of unpack those terms for me? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: non-diet
0: and anti-diet are
1: sometimes used interchangeably. And essentially that is a foundation of intuitive eating. Uh, So just to insert another term in there, uh, intuitive eating itself is a book that was written by two dietitians, first in the early nineties. And then we have four editions that have come out since then. So the fourth edition most recently was published in 2020. Um, It's a set of principles that kind of provide guidelines around how to eat without a diet mentality or without rigid rules and without a limited scope of what health could mean. So non-diet or anti-diet practices reject the idea that each person has to eat according to a set of rules And each person has to follow these exact guidelines in order to be quote unquote healthy. Um, Non-diet and anti-diet principles also reject the idea that a body type has to be within a certain BMI category in order to be quote unquote healthy Um, and accepts that there is natural body diversity and there are... Many, many reasons that someone's body might be small or medium or large or however you want to quantify it. Um, And that's not to say that that body is inherently healthy or unhealthy. And it's also not to say that we as practitioners have to make a body healthy or unhealthy. And I think that's something that a lot of health practitioners sort of grapple with is this idea that health is not an obligation, that health can be a value for someone, but that doesn't mean that they must pursue it or must be interested in it, that it's completely okay for someone to not be that interested in health. Like that is their choice and their autonomy. Um, so more generally I would say that anti-diet and non-diet practices reject a lot of the norms of diet culture, meaning that again, um, we should be able to be intuitive and flexible with our eating choices while also acknowledging that maybe we have unique needs because of our lifestyle or our health or our, um, sport choices, et cetera. And they, that set of principles and practices also rejects the idea that bodies all have to look a certain way in order to be quote unquote healthy and rejects the idea that everyone has to feel morally obligated to pursue health, um, despite their circumstances or despite their values or despite, you know, what's important to them, et cetera. And then health at every size, which I think was the other thing that you mentioned, um, health at every size is a trademark term. It is a trademark owned by the association for size diversity in health. And it has been defined by ASDA as, um, there are five principles to health at every size. And hopefully I can remember them off the top of my head. So we have, um, Weight inclusivity, which again goes back to that idea that weight does not define our health and that natural body diversity exists and that we can, we as health practitioners or any kind of allied health professional can be in this space without feeling like we have to force folks into some narrow definition of health um, based on weight. So there's weight inclusivity. There is life enhancing movement or health enhancing movement or something like that. Um, there is respectful care, which is a huge tenet of health at every size. Uh, we can dig into that if you're curious. Um, there's essentially intuitive eating. So it's called I can I think it's called eating for well-being and they mention intuitive eating and the definition of that. Um, and then I think the other one is just health enhancement. So kind of acknowledging what each individual might consider to be a health enhancing behavior. Like for example, um, for someone participating in talk therapy might be a really health enhancing behavior as opposed to going on a diet <laughs> or something like that. Um, so health at every size, again, is sort of a general approach to healthcare, to nutrition, to therapy, to any sort of kind of individualized care that is defined, um, through those five principles by the association for size, diversity, and health.
0: So all of the work that you do, and thank you for, for unpacking yeah. all of that, because I know you probably do it a lot, um,
1: okay. yeah. but
0: I mean, all of that work is so important. And I feel like in the worlds that I exist in, I see many more folks like you, uh, many more registered dietitians who want to look at dietetics from this more inclusive uh, view and this more just view, which we can get into a bit um, in a moment. I see so more of that, but at the same time, I forget that it's really not the norm, and diets are still so normal in society, yeah. and weight stigma is still so normal, and using BMI as a measure of health is so normal. How do those concepts continue to have such power in society, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, a lot of that comes from the top down. So when we think about, for example, BMI being a standard of care in healthcare, meaning um, even within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they will say that using BMI as a measurement of health is still a quote unquote best practice. Um, And that's because from the top down, policymakers, insurance providers, et cetera, that is defined as a standard of care. Um, So in order to change that, it takes way more than just a single practitioner deciding that BMI is flawed and harmful and ineffective as a measure of individual health, right? Um, All of those things can be true, but we need a lot more action from large groups and lobbyists and health insurance companies, et cetera, to really change that norm. So diet culture very much reigns supreme because we still have systemic fat phobia, systemic thin bias. And our training as healthcare providers is still very much steeped in that training for public health providers is still very much steeped in that. And there are small shifts that are happening in those spaces. I know a handful of academics who are researching weight stigma and trying to bring this information more to light, but we still have this huge body of evidence, quote unquote evidence, uh, research for sure. We do have a huge body of research that sort of supports weight bias and supports fat phobia because researchers are human too, right? So we have this culture that we live in and researchers are not immune to that. So we have evidence of, or we have research that kind of looks at weight loss and how it quote unquote improves health, but what if we removed weight loss from that equation? And we just looked at how people change their behaviors. And could we see that set of behaviors as the thing that improved health instead of the weight that happened to be the outcome. Um, so things like that are still sort of clouding, you know, the effect of a paradigm shift, but I will say that having been a dietitian for almost 12 years, I have noticed personally a huge shift within dietetics just within the last four or five years. Um, And so I think we are kind of like gently on the right path (laughs) towards changing some of these norms. But as with anything that has to do with systems that have been in place for well over a hundred years, I mean, in terms of like Western medicine centuries, you know, in terms of dietetics about a hundred years, it just takes a long time for these things to change. And it takes a lot of um, egos being put aside and research being done in other ways and looking at things differently and thinking about things more critically. Uh, and we're, we're on that path, but it just takes a long time for that to change.
0: And it's so ingrained in our minds. I even think about for me, when this HuffPost article came out a number of years ago, and it was a Michael Hobbs piece, everything we know about obesity is wrong. Mm. That like bloom. i don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that article, if you remember yeah, it. But I remember yeah. it just blew my mind. Just the idea that obesity is kind of a, a bizarre thing that we talk about, and that's so yeah. ingrained in our society and how and how weight connects so much to how we understand health. So it's it's still just I think so ingrained in how we think about health as a society.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't remember the specifics of the article, but I do definitely remember that article coming out. Uh, and I, part of what I hope folks take away from that or kind of take away from work in that space in general is that quote unquote, obesity is a medical construct. Like it is not, (laughs) it's not a disease. Um, Even if you look at how it came to be classified as a disease, you see that the American Medical Association put together a committee internally to review basically the pros and cons of classifying obesity as a disease. The committee that they put together internally rejected the idea that obesity is a disease presented this to the AMA board and the board still decided to vote to classify it as a disease. So we have things like that, that have happened in the healthcare world. Um, and, The problem with like things like that happening behind the scenes is that then all we really see as a consumer, whether you're a healthcare provider or not, like we are all consumers to some extent, we see a headline that's like, obesity is a disease, obesity is harmful, obesity is a risk factor, blah, 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 blah. And we do see a lot of correlation, but we don't see causation. And then again, we don't see some of that information about what's happening behind the scenes that those like really important steps that got us to where we are with how we think about health and weight as a society as a whole. Um, and we kind of take that information to be truth instead of learning how to challenge it.
0: I'm sure that is mind blowing to so many, which is (laughs) wild. And I know that a lot of the work you do is really tied up in weight-inclusive nutrition and dietetics. In fact, you founded the Weight-Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics Movement, otherwise known as WIND. What is, or is it WIND? WIND, yeah, I say WIND. Okay. (laughs) So what is WIND and what does weight-inclusive dietetics actually look like in practice?
1: Yeah, so WIND is an organization, a company, a community, I'm never quite sure what to call it. Um... But essentially I created it to be a space where we as nutrition and dietetic providers can come together and learn how to provide weight inclusive care because at many of our larger national and even state level dietetic continuing education events. So conferences, expos, state meetings, et cetera. uh, Weight inclusive care is given very little space, if any space on the agenda. So we might get one session here or there that's haze aligned, health at every size, haze aligned. Uh, We might get one session here or there about intuitive eating, but it is surrounded by stigmatizing care. (laughs) It's surrounded by um, sessions that are really kind of focused and steeped more in again, sort of traditional practices. And so it just doesn't receive a lot of space. Um, And it's important for those sessions to be there and those agenda items to be there so that, again, we can think critically. I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything, but as long as we have different views, then we can hold those two views together and think critically about them. But more traditionally in healthcare, we're presented with one view and we're supposed to take it as truth and we're not supposed to think too critically about it. So I created wind again, just as a space to learn. And so essentially we do events a couple of times a year. They're all virtual right now, of course. (laughs) Um, And they're just kind of an alternative to more traditional dietetic conferences where most of what we get is kind of steeped in weight stigma and more traditional practices. Um I'm just someone who likes to kind of take a thing that I want and, <laughs> and make it and then bring other people in to learn from. I don't really position myself as the expert very often. I like to just be the person who kind of creates that space to have those conversations or to bring in other
0: people that we can learn from. I think that in itself is such an important concept because I think I think especially as women we often think we have to be the expert to have opinions or to create change in anywhere any area yeah. and I very much consider you an expert in this topic. (laughs) But still, I think it's true that we don't need to be experts to want to make change in an area. So that is a really important concept to highlight.
1: Yeah. And I also try to recognize more often than not that me showing up in a space with a straight-sized body and white privilege and cisgender privilege, etc., brings a certain tone to the message. Like the way that I've heard it described by other thought leaders in the space is that as a thin or straight sized person talking about haze or talking about intuitive eating or talking about weight inclusive care, I might make that message more palatable to someone because I present as their picture of health. Um, So I've learned how important it is for me to not take up that space and to bring folks in who have different lived experiences than I do to share their information and to share the same message, but to come from a different lived experience. So it brings different layers of complexity to the ideas. Um, And I think this is really important for sports as well. You know, we have like bringing it back to something that resonates more with the folks who are here probably is that when we look at sports at a really high level in many sports that we watch or participate in, we sort of see one type of body represented And I think the truth of sports is that folks are going to sort of self-select to be in certain types of sports. So for example, I would never have been a good gymnast. I'm not a naturally flexible person. So I'm just not going to do gymnastics, right? (laughs) That's just, I love it. I want to watch it. um, But I know personally, I'm never going to be that great at it. Is that a reason not to do it? No. But as a An athlete coming up, you kind of identify what you're naturally good at and what you gravitate towards and what you have skill in. And if we didn't just see one type of body represented at higher levels of sport, maybe we would have more natural body diversity in different levels of sport. But because we kind of, at these higher levels, see one type of person represented in many different types of sports, what that communicates from the top down is that that's the only type of person who can thrive in that sport right? Um, So we create this self-perpetuating cycle of, I don't look like that person. I'm not represented in that sport. Therefore, I'm not welcome there. And we're seeing that change very, very, very gradually in places like running, for example. (laughs) Um, But even there, we see what I consider to be still some really problematic approaches to quote unquote body diversity in sport. And really like that body diversity spectrum is very, very, very narrow Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not super welcoming. (laughs) So we still have some work to do there, but there are thought leaders and there are activists in that space who are doing really incredible work. Um, But yeah, again, we have to be able to see, some of us feel like we have to be able to see ourselves in the message or we have to see ourselves being represented. And again, as someone with many unearned privileges in this culture, like I always see myself represented. So I've never thought about that too much. Um, But when I got into this work and realized how, important it is for me to step aside. Even when I feel like I'm knowledgeable on a topic, that doesn't mean I have to be the one talking about it and taking up that space. And I think the same is true in sport. Um, Just because a professional athlete maybe has a limited experience with this one thing doesn't mean they can't talk about it or they shouldn't. I don't think that I think to each their own, but offering some space for different lived experiences, different perspectives, et cetera, would be far more powerful than this one type of athlete with a lot of privileges talking about these topics that affect people in in many, many different ways.
0: Yeah. (laughs) for for people who can't see me right now, I'm like nodding viciously because I'm so happy that you brought this up. And this is exactly the next topic that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. And I think it goes beyond the elite athlete sphere. I think there is oh, yeah. something that I see often in the running and fitness space where it's usually a smaller bodied white woman posts a picture on Instagram where you see like maybe a tiny bit of cellulite or maybe like her abs aren't stereotypical perfect abs. Yeah. And she says something about body positivity. And a while back you shared a post that really resonated with me. It was a picture of you running and I'm going to quote your caption. You said, this yeah. is just another smaller body person running. This doesn't represent body positivity or body acceptance. Tell me about that post. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, me feeling a little spicy, I think. Uh- <laughs> I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Bring on the spicy.
1: Yeah. I I don't mean to shame or knock down anyone who is in a straight sized or smaller body like I am Um, trying to talk about body acceptance and body diversity. I think a misunderstanding in this space is that if you have thin privilege, you can't possibly have body image issues. And that is of course not true. Um, None of us are immune to diet culture or to the thin ideal. However, I think that folks with that privilege, that body privilege are taking up so much space in these discussions and pushing out actual body diversity and creating less space for folks who have different lived experiences. Um, And they're saying essentially like, it's okay for me to have roles because I'm thin. And so people still think I'm healthy, but then you have maybe a larger bodied individual. And I say that neutrally in case no one's ever heard that before. Um, you have a larger bodied individual who is posting their roles and getting tons of troll comments about how unhealthy they are. Right. And so for a thin person to normalize roles doesn't actually serve the body diversity movement it just says it's okay for thin people to have roles but that doesn't mean that that translates to someone in a different body who feels oppressed and marginalized that it's safe for them to post that because often it's not so the reason I posted that and in the picture, just for a visual, um, it was like a self-timer photo and, you know, we select the best one and we post that, right. Um, what I could have done is select this photo where it's showing like cellulite in the thighs and like my hips are like out of alignment. Cause I'm not as strong and like, blah, blah, blah. I could have posted that and said like, see all runners have cellulite, but me posting that with my thin privilege means that people are going to agree with me instead of, concern, troll, my health. Right. Mm. So to just normalize, like we can post a photo of our bodies where we see things that we don't normally see in the highlight reel selection of photos. And we don't have to talk about it. We can, if we want to, but we don't have to, like, I can just post a photo of myself running and not feel like I have to address the fact that I posted a photo where my cellulite is showing. I'm a human. I have cellulite. Like it's there, you know? What a concept. Yeah. Yeah. But the tendency is to select that perfect photo and post that. And then maybe select the imperfect, quote unquote, imperfect photo and put it next to it and see, like, see, my body's not perfect. Instead of just normalizing, like, this is sometimes how we look in photos. And there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to draw attention to it. Um, and I also wanted to call out this idea that like me posting my cellulite was radical. Like, it's not, I still live in a body where it's safe for me to do that. Um, whereas if I lived in a different type of body in this culture, it would not be as safe for me to do that. And I would get comments about how unhealthy I am and how I'm glorifying quote unquote obesity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really what I encourage folks to do is to follow, people who live in different types of bodies and fill your feed with natural body diversity, instead of filling your feed with straight sized runners who are posting about their roles. (laughs) Because then we still, whether we're conscious of it or not, internalize that as the body ideal. And we don't really see that
0: bodies exist on a spectrum. I love that. Such important advice for sure. So these issues are not just things you post about. They're things that are so crucial to your work. And you also have your own podcast, I should say, already, Real Talk, which is incredible. And I've noticed um, that over the past few months, you've been pretty focused on equity and dismantling biases as they relate to body size and race and so many different issues. What issues exist in dietetics when it comes to providing care for folks of marginalized identities?
1: Oh man, how much time do you have? (laughs) I know super
0: broad question. Yeah. I think
1: a main issue that comes to mind, I'm not going to qualify it as like the biggest issue or the most pressing issue or or whatever, but the issue that comes to mind primarily when I think about that is that if I'm remembering my statistics correctly, close to 90% of dietitians identify as white. uh, And A large percentage, I don't have an exact number, are also going to identify as straight sized or thin bodied. And so for someone in a marginalized identity of any type, um, showing up and looking for a dietitian, they're not going to really see themselves represented in what's offered to them. Right. So
0: like you say ninety percent, white. Ninety percent. Ninety percent. Yeah. Wow. It's 2021. It's... And that's
1: yeah. still true. I think that data is from 2017, um, which is, you know, still pretty recent in research terms. Totally. Um, so huge shout out to an organization called Diversified Dietetics who is working really, really hard to change that and has done some really incredible work um, for dietitians of color. Uh, but we have a really, really, really long way to go. So within dietetics, um, for folks who have marginalized identities looking for care, one, they are going to have a hard time finding someone who understands their lived experiences, is trauma informed, or and or represents their own lived experiences. And that's not to say that as a provider, you can't be informed to provide care to folks with marginalized identities, but I would certainly understand that Me as a cisgender, straight-sized, hetero, white female, I may not be the best provider for an LGBTQIA person of color, you know, um, black person, indigenous person, et cetera. So that's okay. You know, I can't be the right provider for everyone. Um, And that's not to say that I should just work with white folks or just work with cisgender folks, but I think representation really, really, really matters. And then- The more representation we have in the field of dietetics, the better information we have. Um, For example, there is a transgender dietitian who submitted a proposal to our large national annual conference about transgender care for eating disorders. And it was rejected because quote, they covered that topic last year. As if it's not important that we keep coming back to this information and we keep learning all the time. Right. So that represents- a, there's nothing else we need to know about yeah. care for transgender people. Nothing there was else. one session on that one year. So we're good. Um, but the truth is that when the profession is largely made up of the same type of person, there is a ton of bias that goes into lobbying efforts, policy efforts, research efforts, funding conference sessions, et cetera. Like we're all human, like whether we want to admit that or not, that bias will show up. So, um, that's kind of the main thing that comes to mind to me when I think about dietetics. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, like our more traditional practices are weight centric. And so that in and of itself in and of itself is upholding weight stigma and weight bias. And we have a long way to go to dismantle that and provide more weight inclusive care for clients and patience.
0: Yeah. I'm like even overwhelmed hearing all of that, which like I I shouldn't be because it's not surprising. It's like, I know all of those things, but it's, it's still overwhelming. There's so much room for growth. And this is another overwhelming question, but is there anything that comes to mind in changes that you like actionable steps that you want to see happening in this world?
1: I think that like big picture, actionable steps are going to be that we really need more research in the areas of weight stigma, weight, inclusive care, non-diet care, et cetera, because at the end of the day, healthcare is an industry and a kind of general profession that is based on what is called evidence-based practices. And I think there are a lot of holes to poke in that. Um, you know, when academia has largely been dominated by white males for the vast majority of its history. And therefore our research is going to have a ton of bias because what are white males thinking about like themselves (laughs) and, you know, their, their own lived experiences, again, like researchers are human, you know, and that's not to say that, Um, all the research that exists in healthcare is flawed um, or imperfect. Well, it is imperfect, but um, it's not that that means that all of it is, you know, should just be pushed aside. But when we think about kind of like who can get through the ranks of academia, pay for it, take on the debt, take the time off, like not have um, high paying jobs, et cetera, like it's limiting, you know, and we've seen. I think there are some improvements that have been made in those spaces over the past, past few decades, but it still has a trickle down effect. And we are still kind of feeling that from, you know, the general history of academia. So like from a huge top-down perspective, I think that is a huge barrier to getting more weight inclusive practices and, uh, weight inclusive care and non-diet care, um, and, I think like at, on an individual level, just the more that we can talk about this and learn about it and do our due diligence to like research and think critically and have conversations and attend conferences, et cetera. Like hopefully that will shift our field. And I, that's also true for athletics. Like an example that I'm thinking of when Mary Kane came out with her story of what happened at the Nike Oregon project. Um, am I saying that right to Oregon? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, The knee-jerk reaction was that we need more female coaches, and that's not the solution to the problem. Like Just bringing in folks with the lived experience that Mary had is not the solution to the problem. The solution is more we need education and awareness, right? We need research to look more at female athletes than it has in the past. We need coaches and practitioners who understand weight stigma, who understand that restricting an athlete from food and like what they actually need is going to be harmful not helpful who understand hypothalamic amenorrhea etc um because we all have our biases so bringing in more female coaches while i'm surely an advocate of that uh doesn't fix the problem it just maybe takes the problem in a different direction so um yeah i think that you know, the more we learn and grow and educate ourselves and try to expand our worldview and try to think more critically about these things, like hopefully the more change we will have, but it just takes a long time for that to happen.
0: I think this idea of looking at the roots of things and and research and who has dominated research connects so much back to that idea of quote, unquote, health and how we measure and define health and how BMI is used. Because my understanding is that BMI is based off of white men. Um, so I think so much goes back to that. And really, yeah, I'm just really happy that you highlighted those kind of more deep-seated, long-standing issues rather yeah. than just few female coaches or which is which right. is an issue. but right. there are you know more deep-seated, more long-standing systemic yeah. issues.
1: It's just more complicated than that. I mean, and not to say that like white men haven't like brought a lot of science and great research into these spaces. But again, it's a very limited worldview. It's a very limited set of lived experiences that are deciding a lot of our quote unquote evidence-based practices, because that's the evidence that we have. That's the research that we have. Um, and the same is true in sport. Like a lot of sports dietitians, myself included, when we look at some of the evidence behind some of our like best practices in sports dietetics that are based on a body of evidence, we're like, Oh, they only studied males in these examples or like the majority of these studies looked at male athletes or white male athletes more specifically. Like it's, we don't get a representation, a variety of representation in these studies. So we take what we have, because that's the research we have, and we have to try to make some recommendations based off of that, but they're very imperfect. They're not hard and fast rules, you know, which kind of comes back to what I was saying at the beginning that like within athletics and sports, we want clear answers, we want clear guidelines, we want Mm -hmm. clear practices, and that can turn into a really harmful set of rules. And there's this huge piece of the conversation missing of like, who are these based off of? And who are these really like ideal for? Because what we are basing it off of is really limited research in the grand scheme of things.
0: Yeah. And bringing that back to the focus on sports again, I want to make sure to mention that you're also the co-founder of Lane 9 Project, which for folks who aren't familiar with Lane 9 Project, it's an incredible organization. It's focused on female athlete health. Do you see those same issues of a research focus on white, small body people affecting the world of sports dietetics too? Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, within the scope of what we have done in lane nine, which is try to raise awareness of eating disorders and disordered eating and sport and that spectrum um, and the root causes of hypothalamic amenorrhea or red S um, both really. We notice that a lot of the eating disorder research, for example, is done on white male or white female, often thin bodied, not always, but a lot of white female kind of straight sized bodies. So we have really limited scope of how we understand eating disorders and how we understand how to treat them, et cetera, because we have a limited sample that we're basing this off of. Right. Um, And that's certainly a problem both in sports and sports research, and then also in eating disorder research. So, you know, we take what we can from that information and we do the best we can to make guidelines and recommendations. But as a practitioner, I just think it's so important to recognize that research is imperfect. And it's important and we need it and like the data is helpful but it's not the end all be all. And we have to remember that the athletes that we work with whether collectively as teams or communities or on an individual level are their own unique people and their own unique person. Um, And so we can provide these guidelines but we have to be flexible with how that looks for that person or how it affects their health um, and be ready to kind of, ebb and flow right along with
0: them instead of saying like, well, no, this is the one thing that we're sticking to. I think this goes again back to what you brought up of the need for just more research and the need to diversify research. I think it all kind of points back to that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I wanted to make sure um, I have this question that I have really wanted to ask you because I see on your Instagram page all the time, you talk about practicing a non-diet approach with your kids. You have two kids and a third mm-hmm. on the way. And for me, I mean, I can say I am not planning to have kids anytime soon, anytime in the rem- you know near future at all. Yeah. And I still think a lot about, you know, maybe if I do have kids one day. Will I pass on any of my own baggage of disordered eating? Will the world pass on baggage of disordered eating? And I'm sure there are tons of other people who think about that. So could you talk a little bit about how you practice that non diet approach?
1: Yeah. I am by no means an expert in feeding children. I only have my own experiences
0: feeding my kids.
1: Um, My kids are three years old and nine months, so they are very young and change by the day. So even what I have learned in the past three years with our toddler, I feel like has changed a hundred times since he started eating solid foods at like six or seven months. Yes, we will pass on our baggage to some extent. <laughs> like, hopefully we can all do some work uh, and you know, practitioners will tell each other, like we can only take clients as far as we've taken ourselves. So it's important that we continue to do our own personal work. And in this space, that's kind of working on, on learning diet culture and being flexible with food and embracing intuitive eating, et cetera. Um, and we can do all that and we're still gonna pass something on to our kids. We can't be perfect. What I have learned with feeding my kids is that, you know, the more neutral we can be, the better. So for example, like a very specific example is like we will often serve some sort of dessert type food with dinner. It's not after dinner. It's not a reward for anything. It's just with part of our dinner. Um, And that's not really how I prefer to eat, but I have the adult brain that can separate those things and think neutrally about them. Um, But kids don't have that and things are really black and white for them for a long time. And so for me, just presenting a cookie with his lunch or a cookie with dinner, or ice cream with dinner tells him that like these foods are all the same and I can eat them at the same time, as opposed to you can have that after you finish your dinner, or you can have that if you clean up your toys. Um, the way that we put food on pedestals is very, very quickly communicated to kids. They pick that up right away. I mean, he could be I feel like probably by 18 months or even two years, we noticed that like he noticed which foods were supposed to be special, whether we enforced that or it was enforced elsewhere. So the huge challenge with feeding kids and like trying to remove diet culture from the equation is you can only control so much within your home and then they go out in the world. Right. Um, but that's true of all things with parenting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, some really great resources for any parents who are listening and feel like they have some work to do or just are curious or want to continue learning. Um, the kids eat in color is a great Instagram account. And then feeding littles is another great Instagram account, both based on sort of intuitive practices for your kids. And it's never too late to start that you might have to kind of help them unlearn some things, but, um, kids know how to eat intuitively. We just get in the way, (laughs) honestly, (laughs) they know what to do. We just get in the way. And then it just gets really complicated from there.
0: And honestly, I think those resources are even cool and interesting if you don't have kids like myself, because it's cool to kind of unpack like, wow, what messages that I was given about food as a child have Mm -hmm. impacted me and- it's just kind of a, a cool thing to learn about. I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's um they're helpful accounts, hopefully no matter what, but um especially helpful for parents who are navigating this space. And again, I just want to reiterate, like if you have an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 15 month old, like these things are helpful and we can always learn and unlearn with our kids um, and try to, just kind of be with them along the way. Um, and kids are challenging. So like whatever feels easy now probably won't feel easy a month from now, or maybe didn't feel easy six months ago or whatever it may be. So just being, I think that practice of being flexible with food and movement and our health and et cetera, like extends to so many things and it will Mm -hmm. certainly
0: serve you as a parent. Amazing. I love that. So I want to begin to wrap up. And first of all, I have a few rapid fire questions for you to end on. Is there a sport or activity that you most want to try? Ooh, that I most want to try. Um...
1: I really wish and want, I wish that I was a person who wanted to try surfing. So I do want to surf at some point in my life, but if I'm being really honest, it terrifies me (laughs) like everything about it, everything about it terrifies me. Um, so I will
0: say that's something I want to try and I want to embrace, but also it terrifies me. Oh, I 100% feel that. I, I feel – I felt lame saying this in the past, but I've tried surfing like once before and it's terrifying. So yeah, no, not no. now that I'm like turning you off from it. You should totally try it, but –
1: Well, I want to try feel it more yeah. to have like
0: personal growth than anything
1: else. Uh, gotcha. Just to say I like at least – I at least did that once.
0: Totally. So what non-sport activity is making you happy right now?
1: Oh, mostly reading um like nonfiction and fiction um trying to get through a couple of books that is like a thing that helps me sort of calm down and like remember what the world was like before it was like this um and maybe after it's like this and to be really honest we've been watching a lot of Netflix shows because like at the end of the day right now, that's just kind of what our brains need, like parenting and pandemicing and working, <laughs> like all of the above. Those are things that we've been enjoying. Um, in addition to just like generally getting outside a lot more than, I mean, we're outside people anyway, but we have spent a ton of time outside in the past year or so just to like get that fresh air, get a little break from things that are going on
0: inside. I'm sure Colorado helps with that too. Yes, mm-hmm. very much so. Yeah. If you could send a baked good to any person in the world, what would you make and who would you send it to?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm really good at making chocolate chip cookies. So Mm -hmm. that's what I would make. And oh, my gosh, I would send it to I have a very, very good friend in South Africa. And I would send it to her just because one, I love her. But two, it's like very hard to send her things. So I don't get to
0: do it very often. So if I had the choice, that's where I would send it. I love that. So my last question that I ask everyone, why is sport a powerful platform for social change?
1: Ooh, that is a great question. I think that on a human level, we tend to sort of, I don't know if idolize is the right word, but admire and look up to athletes because they have achieved something very great and that is only – really accessible to a very small percentage of humans. So there's something really um, amazing to watch and kind of witness in that space. And because they have those platforms, um, when they speak out about things, people listen. Um, That's not to say everyone has to or that they should. Um, But if you have that thing to say, I completely reject the idea that we have to, quote unquote, stay in our lane. Um, And I very much embrace that. Sport is an incredible vehicle for self-development and growth and um, exploration. And if we can't allow athletes to express the way that they are developing and growing and exploring their own humanity, um, then we've taken away a huge part of the way sports benefits us at large. So why not invite those conversations into sport platforms? Because that's where we're kind of learning and developing as humans anyway. And Again, we kind of, as we witness athletes, it's like they're doing something really incredible.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So people listen. So I think it's a great space for that. Thank you for that answer. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for all of the incredible work that you do. And thanks for coming on today. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. Heather has so much expertise and she has her foot in so many doors in sports nutrition, in weight inclusion, and providing care to folks of marginalized identities. I honestly feel like we barely cracked the surface of her work. But if you want to learn more about Heather's work and other topics discussed in this episode, it's all linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to follow Social Sport on Instagram at socialsportpod you can always get in touch by email as well. I'm at socialsportpod at gmail.com. And I ask this every time, but it is honestly so important. Two things you can do to support the show. You can help fund it by going to anchor.fm socialsport and clicking support. You can also leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All right, that's it for now. See you next week. Stay sporty and keep resisting.